This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Well, we all recall in the book of Exodus when the Lord promised to redeem his people from bondage to slavery in Egypt. And he sent those plagues to send a strong message to Pharaoh to let his people go. The 10th one, of course, was the death of the firstborn in Egypt. But in Exodus chapter 12, God told his people to sacrifice a spotless lamb and then mark their doorposts with its blood. This blood would assure that they would be passed over and then be saved from the plague of death. That's why we call it the Passover. And it isn't just confined to the Old Testament. We pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for example, where it tells us that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And as one commentator remarked, the Passover was the memorial of Israel's redemption from the bondage of Egypt. And the Lord's Supper is the memorial of the church's redemption from the heavier bondage of sin and Satan. And as every faithful Israelite would surely be found keeping the Passover, so will every true and faithful Christian be found celebrating the Lord's Supper. How much, though, do we really understand the Passover? And what is the link between the Passover and the subsequent acts of God that have opened the door for both Jews and Gentiles to enjoy his blessings? Well, we're going to talk about it today with Dr. Mitch Glazer, who is president of Chosen People Ministries and co-editor of the new book. It is called Messiah in the Passover. And wonderful to have you here. Mitch, how are you doing? Hi, Janet. Shalom. That was a wonderful introduction. Oh, well, thank you. I was trying to give a little brief synopsis there so people would understand that there is this thread that continues, this scarlet thread that continues of redemption. And this is a great question you ask, I think, at the outset of your book. Why should Christians and Messianic Jews study the Passover? That was so long ago. Now we're in the New Testament. We're under the New Covenant. Why does Passover matter anymore? Right, because um, I put it this way. If... uh, if Jesus is the jewel or the diamond, the Jewish holidays are the setting for the jewel. And when the jewel is put in the right setting, it, it looks so beautiful. That's great. It sparkles more brightly. And when you, when, you, when you see Passover as fulfilled in the death of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and when you see uh, the new covenant f- fulfilled in uh, Luke 22, when he initiated the new covenant through his broken body and through shed blood. And it just, it just makes it so beautiful. And so uh, we wrote the book so that Christians can better understand Passover and even be able to celebrate a Passover, particularly with their, with their children, right. so that they could teach their children at home. But Jewish people teach their children, only Jewish people don't teach their children that <laughs> it was all fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. At least my mother never taught me that. Right, yes. But I taught my kids. Oh, wow. So so that's what makes it so wonderful. Well, absolutely. Now, this is a good place to start, I think, because when you talk about the Seder and the Passover meal that Jewish families will celebrate, this is often pretty foreign to Gentile Christians who've never, Mm. most of them, experienced that. I've done that at a Messianic church once. I went to a Seder, which was fascinating. But maybe you could unpack for listeners a little bit the significance there, particularly in Passover, in in the description of Passover that I just mentioned in Exodus chapter 12, why that is significant when we look at Christ. 
Well, Jewish people um, over time took Exodus uh, 12 and the whole encounter uh, there in the book of Exodus, and they wrapped it up in a way to tell the story from year to year so that the children would never forget what God did in delivering the Jewish people from Egypt. And so it's, it's very important in the Jewish community to pass this story on from generation to generation. And so the rabbis uh, developed something called a Passover Seder, S-E-D-E-R. And Seder is the Hebrew word, which means order. And so actually what we do every year on the first two nights of Passover, Passover is a one-day holiday according to Leviticus 23, but then we add unleavened bread, which is seven days. So the total holiday is really eight days for Jewish people. And what we do is we take the first two nights of the combined holiday, the eight nights, and we have a Seder. We have an order of service, which doesn't play, take place in a synagogue, it takes place in a home. And there's a very specific order to this service. And the whole order of the service is designed to tell the story of the Exodus, and it's for children. So in my home growing up, uh, my grandfather, my grandparents were Orthodox Jews, and uh, our Passover Seder would take about four four or five hours. Wow. And so it's, it's not just reading Bible, singing songs, it's playing games, it's eating the most incredible meal of the Jewish year, and going through this liturgy. And what's amazing is when I was first considering the Gospel, and I read through uh, the, the Gospels, and I, and I saw that Jesus celebrated the Passover, and I looked at what he did, I said, wow, that's exactly what I was raised doing. Huh. And look at the new meaning that he's giving to it. And so it was both very uh, understandable for me, yet very, very new. But because I was, uh, I was raised in, in, in a strong Jewish home, I understood that what he was doing at the Passover Seder was, uh, was basically talking about the ways in which he actually, through his death for our sin, fulfilled the Passover. And that, would, to me, was, was just amazing. And so a Messianic Passover Seder is a great event. And again, you can, you can just call it a Christian Passover, do it in your home. I give you rabbinic permission. Anybody <laughs> wants to do it, you can do it. And, uh, you know, and our book includes all the recipes, so you can even make all the foods. That and we is have neat. crafts, and the book includes a, a chapter on crafts for the children, for Passover, because it's so important. But Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, you know, in the middle of the Passover, Satan, you lift up a lamb's bone and say, Behold the Lamb, and then tell the story of Exodus 12 that you just told, Janet. And, of course, how could you, if you know the story, if you know the end of the story, the fulfillment of Jesus, how could you not understand that he is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world? It's in Isaiah 53, then, of course, in, in John 128, 29, uh, uh, his cousin says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's just wonderful. Oh, it is. Oh, that's so neat. And I, I always thought it would be wonderful to be Jewish and then to come to faith in the Messiah because you'd have that entire heritage there. You could appreciate the Jewishness of Jesus and the fulfillment of all that prophecy of all those types pointing forward to the Messiah and also uh, benefit from the new covenant. Now, when you look, though, you, you point this out. I think this is interesting because you say that we should refrain from reading prophetic fulfillment into every aspect of the Passover. What parts of the Passover would you say we need to refrain from seeing prophetic fulfillment in that particular portion? Well, it, it might be easier 
to just give a, a sort of a Bible study principle, which I'm sure you'll agree with. And that is, when the New Testament says something in the Old Testament is fulfilled, then you know you're on safe ground. Right. Right. <laughs> and so there are many, many items of the Passover um, that, for example, I mean, some people will light the candles and uh, say the prayer over the candles because the woman says the prayer over the candles, they would say, this reminds us that the Messiah would come through a woman. Well, yes, Isaiah seven fourteen does say that, and but and uh, and the New Testament does say it's fulfilled, but it doesn't say anything about the candles. And so, I think uh, one of the reasons we wrote this Messiah in the Passover book is to clarify some of the stuff that um, I think some Bible teachers that don't have a strong Jewish background are suggesting might be prophetic or messianic fulfillments of what Jesus did right. and what and what happens in a Jewish home. And so I think you just need to be uh, cautious and careful. Um, the, uh, but you, you, have, you have so much there that you don't even need to make anything up. And so I'll, I'll tell you another thing about uh, the prophetic nature of Passover, which I think, I guess you have to be raised with it to understand it, the last song we sing at Passover is a beautiful song. Very, uh, you can clap your hands and dance to it. Actually, very bouncy. It's Lashana Hababi Yerushalayim. Next year we will be in Jerusalem, yeah. and so we close every Passover. First of all, we invite Elijah to come uh, because of Malachi three and four, another uh, prophecy. Of course, Jewish people do not know that was, in, at least to some degree, fulfilled in John the Baptist. Right. But we open the door for Elijah to come, and of course, Elijah never comes. And so we then sing here in Jerusalem. I'll tell you what, hang on just a moment, Mitch. We're going to run to a break, but we'll come back. Dr. Mitch Glazer with us. Messiah in the Passover is his book, and we'll return right after this on Janet Meffer Today. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles from the Janet Mefford listening family to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Asia. In this region of the world, Bibles are scarce for many reasons, including the remoteness of where people live. In the Philippines, church planters and evangelists trained by using resources from Bible League International travel many hours by car, boat, and by foot to lead Bible studies in remote places 
places of the country. Let's send them the Bibles they need in order to share Christ and to see lives transformed for His glory. You can join other Janet Mefford listeners by sending a Bible for $5 or $15 for $75. Just call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. And God bless you for caring. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. Great to have you here and also great to have with us Dr. Mitch Glazer, who is president of Chosen People Ministries and co-editor of the book Messiah in the Passover. I absolutely love this book and talking about this issue of Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you were telling us, Mitch, a little bit before we went to the break about what you do during a Seder. And you were describing this last song that you sang next year will be in Jerusalem. You invite Elijah to come and this sort of thing and talking about the prophetic nature of Passover. And I wanted to let you finish that because that's such an interesting portion of what you're talking about here. Yes. Every Jew knows Passover is prophetic by its nature because at the end of the Passover, of course, Elijah doesn't come. And so we sing next year, next year, next year. The Passover has always begged for a completion or a fulfillment. And that's part of the nature of Passover. Every Jew knows that when the Messiah comes, we're going to experience a a greater degree of redemption. And one of the only models for salvation or redemption is the Passover, God's deliverance. I mean, if you ask a Jewish person, how do you understand God's deliverance? They will say, well, it's like the Passover. No, God delivers. It's corporate. It's national. It's not as personal as we would like it to be and as the New Testament explains it to be. But there is this concept that one day the Messiah will come, gather back the Jewish people, bring us back to the land of, of Israel, and we'll establish his kingdom. And so every Passover we say, okay, you didn't come this time, next time, next time. Because the whole point is that Elijah brings the Messiah with him. That's the, it's, it's implied in Malachi 3 and 4, but it's, it's definitely talked about in Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. And so it's the nature of the Passover to be uh, prophetic. So it's not strange that when Jesus sat down with his disciples in Luke 22, and uh, in verse uh, 19, for example, uh, he takes the bread and he breaks it and says, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. The background to that, in a Jewish Passover Seder, we have three pieces of matzah. One refers to God, the next one to the priest, the other to the people. The middle piece, the piece of the priest, is taken out, broken in half, wrapped in a napkin, hidden, brought back at the end of the Passover, then distributed to everybody sitting at the table. We don't know if Jesus did every single part of this, but the tradition is very, very old. We understand it to be old. And so Jesus took maybe the middle piece of matzah, but he broke it, and then he wrapped it as he would be wrapped in burial. He hid it as he would be buried in the tomb and back as he would be raised from the dead. And then if you view it the way I do, he then... He then took pieces of this bread and gave it to his disciples and said uh, and told them to eat. And so that would be, you know, just it's just such a a beautiful picture of of what he did uh, at Calvary. And then the third cup is called the cup of redemption that's taken after the meal. And in Luke 22, 20, we see that Jesus took the cup after the meal. So we know it's the cup of redemption. Mm. That's very early. 
uh, in Jewish tradition. Wow. And so he took the cup of redemption, which reminded us of the shed blood of the lamb. And now instead of the shed blood of the lamb, he's basically saying, this should remind you of my shed blood, the lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. And no longer is it just for Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles. And it no longer only refers to redemption from Egypt, but to this greater redemption, as you mentioned, Janet, from the redemption from the bondage of sin and death. Wonderful. And so when you see these elements uh, where Jesus declares them to be fulfilled through his very person, and he does it at Passover, it's, you know, it's just, it's just wonderful. Stunning. It's beautiful. Yes, for sure. And that's our, and that's our communion. So, yeah. so Jewish, so Gentile Christians have been celebrating uh, Passover every time they take uh, communion. They just didn't know it. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I'm curious to ask you, Mitch, from a Jewish perspective, as you you go through this Seder as a practicing Jew, and I know there are different types of Jewish traditions, but what do they do with the remembrance of the blood that? covers the door frame and protects, you know, when you go back to Exodus and how God passed over because of the blood of the lamb. Is there much right. discussion about the shedding of blood being necessary for the forgiveness of sins? You know, the temple was destroyed. And how do they deal with that theolo- that theological issue? Right. I wish there was, but to be, uh, that's what we mean by not, you know, we have to be just a little cautious about uh, what we understand as prophetic. But then again, Janet, some of you know, some of it has to do with Bible, some of it has to do with Jewish tradition. So, biblically, I think we can see typology, particularly if it's, uh, you know, it's it's mentioned in the New Testament. So, Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in First Peter, in John one twenty nine, and uh, in Revelation. So, Jesus being the Lamb is is a, you know, it's a real theme. Right. Isaiah fifty three. It's a real theme. So these are biblical themes, but. You're asking me a question about Jewish tradition. So in the Jewish tradition, is there much discussion at Passover about the blood of the Lamb? The answer is no. Hmm. And so uh, I I wish there was. But that doesn't mean it's not true, because it is a biblical theme, but it is not a, a big theme in Jewish tradition. And part of that is because the temple was destroyed. Right. And so the value of shedding blood for atonement Sort of really lost its um, really lost its uh, relevance because Jewish people went so long without a temple. Yes. And so basically, another question might be: Is so how did Jewish people see forgiveness of sin without a temple? Yes. And that would that's an interesting uh, point because it also has to do with sacrifice because we look at the sacrifice of our lips, our prayers of our hands, that's our deeds, sacrifice of our heart, which is our contrition or repentance of soul. And when all of these sacrifices we make uh, sort of uh, counterbalance our sin, uh, then uh, we have uh, a good year. And so this is remembered more on the Day of Atonement than it is on Passover. Uh, But but again, certainly uh, the temple... Uh, Jesus, of course, when he celebrated Passover, the temple was there, but a Jewish tradition has really grown up uh, and really focused on the temple not being there. And so there's, a, there's all throughout the Passover, there's just this longing for the future, the future redemption, the coming of the Messiah, the return to Israel, and the rebuilding of the temple. So that is all part of the Passover tradition, Janet, but 
not a lot of discussion about the atoning power of blood. Interesting. Yes, that always... 1711. Yeah, that was always a question for me, and I've talked to some Jewish friends about that before, and I would raise that issue. Well, how are you forgiven? (laughs) You know, and that kind of opens the door to talk about the Messiah, Jesus. What about celebrating the Seder, going back to what you were discussing before, Mitch, and the value of being able to go through a Seder meal and see the significance of Christ in the Seder meal? Why do you think that that's a really good tool for seeing the significance of Passover, for especially for Gentile Christians who aren't as familiar with the tradition as you would be? Well, it's very important, particularly for children, because it's very tactile. There's, there's uh, horseradish to eat, there's chopped apples to eat, there's, there's parsley to dip in salt water, there's matzah, unleavened bread to eat and to munch on it. And it's very crummy, and it makes a lot of noise when you eat it. So, I mean, so the Passover experience is designed to be unforgettable. And so I think tremendous value to children. And as I, because I present Messiah and the Passover in many, many churches all throughout the year, and uh, especially during the Passover season, I always like to remind uh, the folks listening to me that adults also love crafts. You know, right, <laughs> and uh, and so it's you know we designed it for the children, but the adults like it just as much. Yeah, and so and so I, I think it's it's memorable. It's designed to be memorable, and uh, and so I think that that's why it's so good. And I think that one of the philosophies in Jewish life that has a lot to do with with raising children, and uh, it's not just because I'm Jewish and I had good Jewish parents. I think Jewish parents. Jewish people think, I mean, we're very family-focused and spend a lot of time thinking about raising kids. And and so one of the, and, and so do Christians. And so I think there's a, a real parallel. It's a great lesson. Jewish people always feel that we are one generation away from forgetting everything that God taught us mm-hmm. or did for us if we neglect training our children. Right, right. And so I think that's a great Jewish lesson that I think Christians know intuitively but I think it's it's good to hear it, yeah. that training the children to remember what God has done is one of the most important things we can do with our lives. And Amen. Passover is a great tool to do it. For sure. And I would say also from personal experience, it really makes you look at the Lord's Supper in a new and fresh way and experience the significance of what the Lord did when he offered us his body and his blood in that meal. It means so much more when you understand Passover. It surely enhances that significance for, I would imagine, most people who experience a Seder. Oh, it absolutely does. We have a whole, we have a whole chapter on on uh, 1 Corinthians 11 yeah. and uh, in the new book. And, uh, and it was written by a Gentile Christian guy who attended our seminary training program in, in Brooklyn and where he got a full dose of cultural uh, um, uh, training. And, and even he didn't understand it. So I mean, watch, reading that chapter is just a blessing because he's grown a lot in his understanding of it. I think when you celebrate a Messianic or Christian Passover Seder, and take the Lord's Supper within the context of the Passover Seder, of the worship service, eating the meal and everything else, you almost feel like you're doing it just like Jesus did it, and just like the disciples did it. And it's life-changing, because all of the significance of the shed blood of the Lamb, uh, of the unleavened matzah and the reminders to refrain from 
sin because matzah is love. That symbolism is so obvious. Absolutely. Well, the name of the book is Messiah in the Passover. Dr. Mitch Glazer spending time with us. And so good to have you here, Mitch. God bless you. And thanks a lot. God bless you, too. All right. Thank you. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is God's seventh commandment to us, and yet it is clear that it is not always obeyed. And that's true not only in the world, but also in the church, and you can even read about it in the Bible. David, for example. My next guest, though, has personal experience with this sin, and now Nancy Anderson is out with a book about it. It's called Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow a Fair-Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. And Nancy, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you, Janet. Well, thank you so much. So you say you're an expert on infidelity because of your experience with your husband. Tell us a little bit about what brought you and your husband together in the first place. Maybe a little background on your marriage. Okay. We were married almost 40 years ago, and we were friends, and we got along fairly well, or at least we thought we did. Mm -hmm. But then we got married, and the flaws that we've been covering up started to bubble up. And we began to see things in each other that we didn't like. And instead of working on those things and addressing those things directly and maybe getting help with those things, my response was to pull away from him, to be angry at him. Then he started to resent me, and the gap got wider. And I was very discontent. And someone at work started flirting with me and telling me I was pretty and wonderful and smart. And all the things my husband wasn't saying, I'm not excusing my behavior, but a marriage that's distant and cold is a setup for trouble. And that's what happened to me. And I went in search of greener grass. Wow. Now, were both you and your husband Christians at the time that you got married? We were. I had been actually since high school during the Jesus People movement. I got saved in the 70s. My husband was not a Christian until actually after we met, but I was really not serving the Lord. And together as a couple, we stopped going to church. Mm. We just found excuses not to do the spiritual discipline that we needed to do. And so because of that, we were drifting from each other, but also from the Lord. Right. Well, that happens sometimes. So you embarked on an affair with this coworker of yours. How did that unfold? What were some of the interim steps that took place between dissatisfaction with your marriage and then engaging in a full-blown affair? Well, it was just that. It was little, little decisions that led to big decisions. And the first one was we were just friends. I mean, we liked the same kind of music and we, you know, it was innocent until one day we were sitting next to each other in a meeting and his leg thigh bumped up against mine. And normally that happens and you just pull away and say, oh, excuse me, but I didn't pull away. Hmm. And that one thing 
of me sending him a signal that I'm unguarded. I'm open to possibilities. Right. And then the one thing led to us sitting together more often and then sitting together at lunch and then going to lunch alone and then going to dinners alone. And the progression were small steps, but there was a big cliff at the end of those steps. Right. Did your husband have any clue at all that you were becoming very close friends with this man at work? Or did he no. just think he was a coworker? What was his interpretation of what was going on? Um, well, I didn't tell him anything. And... I lied about all kinds of things, because if you're committing adultery, you're lying Sure. to yourself, to God, to everybody. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a terrible place to be because you can't remember who you told what to. Uh, but I didn't mention anyone at work. Um, and my husband knew I was drifting from him, and I would tell him that. I'd say, we don't even like each other. Why did we get married? This was a mistake. So he knew I was dissatisfied with the marriage, but he didn't know that I'd gone over the fence. Right. Wow. So now how how far were you into the marriage when this all started to unfold? Well, we were still young. I was 24, 22 when we got married and 24 when I uh, had the affair with the coworker. Wow. So long time ago. And yet, it feels like a different version of myself. Yeah. You know how you look back and you go, what was I thinking? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, what was I thinking? I don't know. I was thinking about the temporary. I was thinking about the quick fix. I was thinking about my feelings. Because my feelings, this was exciting stuff. Sure. But did, but, you, did you have any guilt at all? Did you have any points in time where you said, this is wrong? I, mm, I don't know about this. You know, the, those would pop up. But then... It's amazing because I could squash them back down again. I'm driving down the road and Jay Vernon McGee comes on the radio and he says, if you stop your sinning, God will forgive you. And I hit the radio off. Wow. I did not want to stop my sinning. You didn't want to hear it. So, I didn't want to hear it. Yeah. So now this other man that you were involved with, was he married? Yes. And with children. I didn't ugh. have children at the time. Okay. Did he wrestle with guilt at all that you know of? I'm not sure. I, I would assume so. Um, he did stay married, as far as I know, and I think his wife took him back and they reconciled. Wow. Um, so there must have been something in him that, you know, that stayed and worked on it. Right. So I haven't had contact, but through a weird circumstance, Someone told me about it. You heard about it. Yeah. That he's still married. So that's good. Yes. Now, what I found interesting in your book is you talked about at one point when you were ready to leave, you were ready to file for divorce. Your parents were not in favor of it. How did you get from being in an affair to getting to the point where you were going to file a divorce and then your dad was saying, this isn't right. You don't have biblical grounds. What went on between those two events? <sighs> it was a battle, I'm telling you. But the Lord turned it around really in 24 hours. It was, I, I don't use the word lightly, but it was a miracle wow. because what happened was a series of circumstances that had to line up exactly as they did um, briefly. I had to be home at, at our condo. Now, I had moved out. I went back to get a few things. My mom had to call. This was before cell phones. She had to call my physical home phone. I had to pick it up. My mother had not been able to sleep because she said something's wrong. Hmm. The spirit in her, my parents are both believers, 
knew that there was some turmoil with me. Mm-hmm. I denied it. I lied. I said, I'm fine. She put my dad on the phone because she knows I can't lie to him, <laughs> and I couldn't. So I told him part of the truth, but then he pushed me further. And I said, you know, well, I'm just not happy, and I tried to play the... The sympathy call, but Daddy, don't you want me to be happy? (laughs) I'm so miserable. I'm the only girl in the family. So I thought that he would be on my side, and he said, well, what have you done to fix it? Have you gone to your pastor? No. I didn't tell him we weren't going to church. Have you gone to a Christian counselor? No. Have you read a book? Have you gone to a marriage seminar? Have you talked to a marriage mentor, a successful couple? No. He said, well, then I can't support you leaving him. You haven't done anything to fix it. Marriages are not disposable. Right. And then, um, so that challenged me. And then he prayed. When a father prays for a daughter, something happens. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a powerful thing. Yep. And that began to crack my facade. That's and interesting. He, <laughs> he got off the phone with me, and then I said my own prayer, and it was two words. That's all I could muster. I just said, show me. Hmm. And that's when God showed me that I was the woman in John 8 who had been caught red-handed in adultery and was under the death penalty of the law of the day and was ready to be stoned and, and should have been, and yet Christ had mercy on her. Wow. That's incredible. So how long did the affair go on? What was the length of it? Oh... Uh, you know, from the leg bump, if you count it from there, probably six months. Okay, so not super long, but long enough to do damage. And what was your husband's reaction when he found out about it? Well, and that's the other part of the story. After I confessed to the Lord and he showed me that what I had done was horrible, but not beyond redemption, uh, Ron came home that night and I confessed everything. Now, we had had volatile fights most of our marriage. And you'd think that would be the time he would explode when I confessed everything, but he didn't. Wow. And he was relieved because he said, now everything makes sense. Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you what. Hang on a moment. We're going to go to a very quick break. We'll be back with Nancy Anderson. Her book, Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow a Fair-Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. We'll come back right after this on Janet Meffer Today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
This is Janet Mefford. We're joining with Bible League International, a ministry founded in 1938 to send God's word to Bibleless believers in Asia. Today, you can send a new Christian her very first Bible in her own language and at a level she can understand. Before last year, Malia in Sri Lanka had never heard the name of Jesus. Now she follows him and is determined to share Christ with everyone she meets, even those living in the grips of spiritual darkness who are hostile to the gospel. But she needs her own Bible. Bible, and you can be the one to center the hope of God's Word. By giving now, you'll also help us meet our shared goal with Bible League of sending 1,200 Bibles to Asia. All it takes is $5, or $100 sends 20 Bibles. Call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Thank you for caring. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Thank you for joining us. We are talking with Nancy Anderson about adultery and what it takes to recover and to find healing and forgiveness and even restoration in your marriage after you have an affair. And she's telling her story from her book, Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow Affair-Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage. So, Nancy, you were to the point in the story where you had told your husband that you had been having an affair with a man at work. He didn't explode. So what happened from there? You had the background then of your parents also saying we can't support you leaving your husband if there are no biblical grounds for it. How did you begin the process of restoration with your husband from that point? Well, it was a slow process. But the first step was the next morning after I confessed everything, I called and quit my job. Yes. With a coworker, And I called um, this Jake that I was having the affair with, with Ron on the phone. And we both broke up with him, wow. my husband and I. Wow. <laughs> I don't know how we came up with that, but Ron said, you know, I'm going to call him, and I didn't want him to be angry or aggressive, so I said, well, let's call him together. So we did. And he cried, of course, and I cried, and my husband cried, but we were all crying for three different reasons. Hmm. And we broke it off, and I called the boss and said, I'm not coming back. Now, it was a great job. But no job was worth my marriage, no. and I never went back wow. to Jake or the job. Wow. So that was the first step, and that's what we tell couples is zero contact, clean break. Yeah. Yeah. If you have to move, move. Whatever you have to do, do it. That is good advice. So when you're talking with people who have been in the situation that you've been in with your husband, and you're talking about these hedges that you can put around your marriage to prevent affairs, certainly you have a lot of experience in this area now where you can give people good advice. What would be the first thing that you would say to a couple where one of the spouses has had an affair and said, I just don't think the Lord can bring us back to where we were. We're going to have to break up. He's going to leave me. Is there anything I can do? And then you also have the couples who say, I'm kind of tempted. There's this cute girl at work and she pays more attention to me than my wife who's tired at home with three kids. What do you say to those people, not just who've had affairs, but starting with people who say, what if I'm tempted? What do I do to protect my marriage in advance? Well, I think the first thing is to admit that the whole greener grass syndrome is, all of us have it to some degree and that it's okay to admit it If you try to cover it up, bury it, or lie about it, it will bubble up somewhere else. Hmm. 
So I think honest communication between spouse, spouses is the first step by saying, look, we're in trouble. This isn't working. I'm feeling distant. I'm feeling tempted. I'm in pain. I'm lonely. I'm sad. I'm whatever to come out and say it. And I know it's hard, but I think that's the first step is to say we need help, whether it's Christian counseling, pastoral counseling, um, a marriage seminar, something to get us back and reconnected. Because there are low points in every marriage. Maybe there's an illness or money problems or something that drives a wedge and then the wedge gets bigger and bigger so you can't see each other anymore. Right. Do you find that men will tend to have affairs for different reasons than women tend to? Generally speaking, yes. Uh, Women tend to have an emotional need that's not met by their husband. I'm not saying that's a reason to, but typically that's what happens, is that women want the emotional connection that they're lacking, and men generally want the physical slash sexual connection that they're lacking. Hmm. That's not always the case, but in general, um, that's what women and men are looking for that are different. Yeah, right. Well, now when you talk about the H part of the word hedges, you talk about the need to listen and speak with patience and understanding with your spouse. So going back to your young self when you were 22, 23, and you and your husband were having a rocky period, how would you have done things differently then? I would have done so much differently because I still struggle with this. I'm a right fighter. I don't like to be wrong. And so I would defend my position even when it was illogical or crazy to defend it. And then that would get him so angry that he would use profanity and call me horrible names. And so I would start it, he would finish it, and then we'd get in the crazy cycle of we're both defending our position even though rationally, we know we're both being ridiculous. So that was our pattern. Um, He grew up in a family where profanity and horrible names were normal. I grew up in a family where we never did that. In fact, we hardly even teased each other. Hmm. So I didn't know how to resolve conflict because I I didn't see my parents fight. He grew up with nothing but conflict and never saw it resolved. Wow. So Families of origin do affect your marriage, there's no doubt. Yeah. And so we hadn't learned the skills of how to fight fair and how to come to a resolution, how to compromise, how to work it through, how to talk it through. We just blew up. Yeah, which doesn't solve things. (laughs) So, yeah, so, so really your goal then is to say when there's a problem, speak up and try to work through it rather than just, you know, going back to your corners and screaming and yelling and, you know, avoiding one another. You got to talk it through. Right. Which is important for the relationship. What about helping each other? You talk also about encouraging why that's important. Yes. And by helping, I mean physical, mental, spiritual, being each other's friend coming alongside, saying you're doing a good job, finding, catching each other doing it right. Hmm. It's so easy to catch someone doing it wrong. But noticing when the other person is making an attempt. My husband recently has started opening car doors for me. I know, at 40 years. Um, Well, I had a hurt foot, so he was helping me. (laughs) So it kind of started because I physically needed help. And then I said, you know what, this is really sweet. I really like this. So he is now attempting to help me physically, but also to help. It, it makes me feel loved. That's good. So there's new things to learn 
about helping each other, especially as you age. Our parents, we were caring for our elderly parents. He would go visit my dad. I would go visit his mom. To me, that's love. Yeah, it is. It is, is serving each other. Yeah. What are the needs and how can I meet them, whatever they are? Right. Well, skipping ahead to another one, you talk about the need to agree on and to enforce your boundaries. This seems like a really important one. How do you go about doing that to sort of make sure you have boundaries that neither of you cross that could lead to disaster? Yes. And that's the guarding hedge. And we talk about boundaries at work, which I didn't have, obviously, but you set those up ahead of time. Do I get in a car with a coworker if it's just the two of us? Do I go to lunch alone with a coworker? Do I text a coworker about something not work related? Um, these are all things. What about business travel? That's a big one. Yeah. You get on a plane and sometimes people leave their morals back at the airport. Right. Um, so to talk about these things is, is a big um, issue that a lot of couples don't do. So if you preset them ahead of time, of sharing passwords with each other on your phone, on your computer. There's just so many things that couples need to talk about, especially in the electronic age. Yes, right, because now we got social media and all the rest. Exactly. Yeah, it's so true. Exactly. What would you see, Nancy, would be the most important or one of the most important boundaries to get in place? (laughs) I think it all starts with the spiritual aspect of it. Because if we're building a house, our home, our marriage... Upon the Christian foundation, then we have to be connected to that. Yeah. Regular church attendance, couple studies, Bible studies, you know, men's, women's, whatever it is. I think if you are serving Christ and then from there serving the marriage and serving your family, you have a strength that you don't have. I certainly didn't when I was doing it on my own right. because I'm not that strong. He is. Right. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, and keeping those that closeness with your spouse and having Christ as Lord of both of your lives, that you have that unity. Yes, exactly, because the three-stranded cord is not easily broken. We know that from Scripture. So that's the Lord, my husband, myself, and the Lord knit together, which we were not doing early in our marriage, and our marriage fell apart because the Lord was not knit into our relationship. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, this is this is why people can take your experience and, and glean wisdom from what you have experienced and the wisdom you've gained from going through this and being able to give advice to others who are in your position to not go through what you went through and what your husband went through. Exactly. And, yeah, and all these hedges, we didn't have time to get into every single one of them, but you can read in the book. Again, the name of the book is Avoiding the Greener Grass Syndrome, How to Grow a Fair-Proof Hedges Around Your Marriage, which I think is really great advice from Nancy Anderson. Nancy, it was wonderful to have you here. I really appreciate your being with us, and it was great to talk to you. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. God bless you, too. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you for joining us here on Janet Meffer today. Always a pleasure to have you here. God bless you, and we'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Meffer today was brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Thank you so much.